0: Thank you everyone who's joining us uh, for another one of our panels on COVID and the Constitution. And thank you very much for our three panelists who are here to speak with us today on the issues that um, this pandemic is causing for various First Amendment rights, everything from free speech to association to um, freedom of religious practice. Um, we're really pleased to be joined today by Ash Bhandari, staff attorney of at the ACLU Speech Privacy and Technology Project. I'm Alonzo, who's the director of free, the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, and Micah Schwartzman, professor and director of the Carr Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia Law School. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, so I'm gonna give a couple short intro questions to each of you and then we'll just open it up to the room for any questions our audience has. Um, so just to kick off the discussion, Esha, Um, what's the standard for limiting free speech activities and can public health risks, um, obviously, you know, this is a very significant public health risk we're facing right now, um, serve as a legitimate basis to stop or limit um, activities that are protected by the free speech clause of the First Amendment, especially activities such as
1: protests? Thanks very much, Jake, for having me. Um, The short answer is the standard is the same as it always would be. We don't lose our constitutional rights at a time of crisis, and we don't lose our constitutional rights vis-a-vis public health orders. So the important thing is that if we're talking about freedom of speech, um, you know, the same constitutional scrutiny, the same level of constitutional scrutiny applies. So for example, if you've got content-based restrictions that would normally be subject to strict scrutiny, um, the same goes for uh, similar restrictions at a time of, of public health crisis. If you've got restrictions that are content neutral, but might be subject to intermediate scrutiny, you'd still have to satisfy those same requirements. Now, I think, you know, the big question on everyone's mind, of course, is about restrictions on physical gathering, because that has been the greatest challenge for the right to protest in America at this current point in time. Um, And I think that, you know, when you look at the restrictions that are in place, the relevant question is, are these necessary to prevent a grave and immediate threat of harm to people? And are they the least restrictive measures available? Um, So I think the government would have to make two showings. One, that the science is there to show that people gathering in large numbers is a danger to them. And two, that there's no less restrictive measure that could be enacted that wouldn't impinge on those rights. Um, And then the third inquiry I'd say is that any limitations that are found to satisfy those restrictions have to continue to be reevaluated. So you can't just say that at, you know, one point in time, um, the science uh, and, and the public health necessity um, was to limit gatherings, but that we don't go back and regularly revisit that inquiry. Um, it's not enough for government officials to uh, put in place restrictions and then not think about them and and whether they continue to be necessary, continue to be justified, and continue to be the least restrictive measures necessary. So I would say that is the overall framework, and I think that's really important because we've seen some courts that have been evaluating certain public health orders seeming to suggest that you get a lower level of constitutional scrutiny um, or that, you know, we defer to officials' Um, decisions, and and that courts have a a very minimal role to play. Um, And I I don't think that that is the case, especially when we're talking about fundamental constitutional rights like freedom of speech and expression. Um, It could be that when courts actually conduct that analysis, that certain restrictions that would not normally be justified are justified for a time period, like Uh, limits on physical gathering, but that doesn't mean that we don't have those rights and that it's not important for the government to have to justify it um, or that we just live at the mercy of officials' determinations on their own. Um, And then the other thing I would mention is obviously right to protest is the one that has been in most people's minds because um, limitations on physical gatherings have been quite common at this time, but every other protection that is not implicated by public health orders directly is still in place. Um, You know, we don't lose our free speech rights online. There are other ways that people can protest short of um, the physical gatherings. So for example, um, you know, people's rights to boycott, people's rights to strike, um, people's rights to uh, post signs. You know, all of those rights exist Um, And, you know, the government wouldn't be justified in using a public health emergency to say, well, we have to restrict the speech of people because, um, you know, it's important that we control the information that's out there or that we try to promote unity or some of these other invocations that have been made in times of emergency. In fact, it's more important than ever that we have robust protections for people criticizing government, criticizing government officials, using every tool at their disposal to exercise those free speech rights. Um, so I think we have to be especially vigilant about uh, you know, those pressures, even, even with speech that doesn't have to do with physically gathering.
0: It's a very helpful way to start off our chat. Uh, Professor Schwartzman, I want to bring you in. How are religious communities reacting right now to stay-at-home and lockdown orders? And what's happening across the country in terms of um, litigation um, on that front?
2: I think the vast majority of religious communities have taken the requirements of social distancing very seriously, and uh, closed off uh, their in-person activities, move things online where possible, um, you know, move social services to the extent that they can in, into compliance with social distancing rules. Um, but there has been resistance, uh, at least in some parts of the country and and among some de- smaller denominations, um, and we've seen litigation now in. Several states. I think we've got at least uh, five or six states. I think there was a suit filed in Wisconsin recently as well. So you know, um, the amount of litigation is climbing. Uh, I think we'll continue to see tests uh, even as we uh, as we have states moving into opening up and, and um, pulling back some of their social distancing requirements. Um, the litigation so far uh, has focused. Uh, I think there are really kind of two types of cases. We've got some cases involving um, challenges to purported restrictions on, um, on religious uh, uh, gatherings involving things like drive-through worship services, where uh, if there were actual compliance with social distancing rules, maybe there wouldn't be a problem, but there's some confusion about these, about how to interpret state orders, and, uh, and so there's been litigation about how to understand them and whether they've reached too far. And then I think on the outside margins, we're starting to see challenges to uh, restrictions on in-person services. So far, those have been turned away, and the courts that have addressed them have been cautious about them. The Sixth Circuit, most recently in a per curiam decision, um, I think came up to the edge of, of discussing in-person uh, uh, gatherings but didn't reach them. Um, that will be, I think, where the real real challenge is, um, and we'll we'll have to see how far courts are willing to go and. Uh, and curbing um, public health regulations that restrict religious gatherings that are in person. I would only add to this that I think partly what's been lost in some of this litigation is that you know, at the inception of this public health crisis, there were many cases uh, in which contagion and infection were, was linked to clusters in religious communities, sadly. But that's where people gather and gather for a, a longer period of time than they might in other places. Um, and so I think at the local level, there was a fair amount of local knowledge that, um, that religious communities, uh, if they proceeded as, with business as usual, so to speak, would, would be hard hit and would be vectors uh, for contagion. That's a public health problem. And I think that was taken seriously in blue states and red states across the board. I don't think it was politicized, but I think increasingly it's becoming politicized. And what we're seeing uh, is um, a polarization, even within the litigation along political lines. It didn't have to be that way, but I think it's turning out that way, where you had states with quite stringent rules that were red states, right? Idaho, Mississippi, Oklahoma had fairly stringent exemption rules. I mean, it didn't track red or blue initially, but as the litigation proceeds, I think we're gonna see things balkanize along those lines.
0: Thank you. Um, A lot of online entities, especially social media companies, have been looking at trying to make sure that there isn't spread of disinformation online, which obviously can have really severe risks in a situation like this. Does that have First Amendment implications, even if the actions are coming from what are companies rather than the government as far as trying to shut down certain speech um, if they think that it includes disinformation?
3: Yeah, that's a, a great question, Jake. And I think it's, defi- it's safe to say that there are definitely free expression concerns that come up whenever companies are doing any kind of content moderation, but especially around things like disinformation, where definitions and who your authoritative sources of information um, can really play an enormous role in, in what you actually consider um, needs to be restricted online or not. Uh, but the key question, if we're thinking about, is there a First Amendment issue here? Is whether there is government action related to the, the speech that's being restricted. Um, so one of the uh, a good example of where this question actually came up um, a couple of weeks ago, there were reports that um, Facebook was removing uh, postings about anti-quarantine protests mm-hmm. if they defy government guidance on social distancing. Um, and there was also some reporting that Facebook had been talking with governors or public health officials in different states. And it was very unclear about what those conversations were like. Um, one of the big questions that came out was: you know, were governors or other governmental officials um, directly ordering Facebook to remove? specific posts about organizing particular protests. If the answer to that was yes, there would be enormous First Amendment questions there. You know That would be direct government action saying, please take down one, this, this content, this post, and in order to suppress this particular kind of political protest, um, that would raise very direct and um, concerning First Amendment questions. But if the answer was no, that there wasn't actually direct requests from governments around particular posts, it starts to get a lot murkier um, because companies can peg their content moderation standards to kind of any standard of their choosing, including things that are coming from government guidelines. So Facebook or any other social media company can say, like our standard for deciding whether to allow this post to stay online or not is going to be tied to, you know, what are the particular state government Um, requirements around protests and in that case you can understand that it might make sense for the company to talk to the people promulgating those guidelines and try to understand what they actually mean and what is kind of in the bounds of the law and not in the bounds of the law Um, but that still raises a lot of questions around kind of just how much government influence on ultimately this decision by the company uh, has really been happening I think we're always sort of wondering about questions of coercion from uh, government action. Um, Government action under a First Amendment doctrine doesn't have to be direct, it doesn't have to be, you know, the governor of a state saying, you must take down this post. It can be more in the form of threatening, you know, things will go very badly for you, social media company, if you don't take action against these kinds of posts. Um, Trying to understand, is there any of that kind of, you know, one step removed, but still overt government activity aimed at suppressing particular speech um, is I think still a big question in these kinds of uh, examples. But to me, the big picture question for all of this, for whether we're talking about protests or um, other kinds of uh, talking about disinformation or other kinds of content censorship is how much sort of government endorsed censorship gets laundered through content moderation processes, whether it's through things like informal pressure, From governments on companies' use of specific governmental guidelines or standards for what's allowed on platforms and what isn't, um, or for through more direct sorts of activity like government flagging content as violating a company's content policy um, rather than making a claim that it it violates the law. Um, This gets especially difficult to sort of uh, untangle because companies do arguably have their own First Amendment rights to. To moderate and restrict content more severely than what the government could restrict under the First Amendment. So one thing that we've seen happen a lot, um, not as much in the US, but uh, but particularly in Europe is official kind of government policies to flag content to companies as violating their own policies rather than the law as a kind of a quick and easy way to get content restricted. Um, So I think that's something to always be on the lookout for when we're thinking about how in the U.S., how are government officials kind of interacting with uh, social media companies about their own content policies? Um, because there is that that kind of potential avenue for indirect, but still very much kind of motivated by governmental preference um, to influence uh, how these policies are enforced.
1: Building on what you just said, Emma, you know, I ha- there's an example of a out of Puerto Rico, which is direct government action, but I think also goes to your point, where the government of Puerto Rico amended their public security law um, to make it unlawful for media outlets or social media accounts to transmit or allow the transmission of false information with the intention of creating confusion, panic, or public hysteria with regards to any um, public health order uh, relating to COVID-19 or any other disaster or emergency. Now you've got a problem with you know this direct government action making certain speech illegal, um, but you could also see you know social media companies either facing pressure in the face of a law like that or being told, well, look, this speech is now illegal here, um, and so there's a lot of pressure to take it down. Um, so I think that's something we have to be vigilant for. Uh,
0: I, I want to just um briefly follow up on this point because I'm a little curious. I mean, there, there are some limits where those types of rules can, um, you know, make sense. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking offhand in the context of something like voter suppression. I mean, one of the very few um, types of political things that will get taken down on a site like Facebook is if someone is putting out information that's, you know, say lying about what day an election is to try to discourage voters saying that it's, oh, it's, you know, Wednesday instead of Tuesday. Um, you know, that's both something that will get taken down and is also against the law. Is is there kind of a a standard for saying like on COVID where something would be something that's disinformation would seem to draw a pretty reasonable line of, okay, well, even though this is free speech, it's not necessarily First Amendment protected.
1: So I, I can tackle, you know, one part of the question, because I think, you know, Emma was talking about both the, there's the takedown of, of, disinformation but also the takedown of organizing of activities that would be unlawful under a public health order like a protest or a religious gathering and I think that there's there's reason that we should be really cautious about suggesting that that's the same as taking down uh, material that would be contributing to voter suppression um, or you know clearly unlawful activities Um, I think that you know when it comes to these public health orders, these are supposed to be temporary. And and that's part of the reason they may or may not be constitutional, is that these are not permanent limits on our ability to protest and assemble. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, and and there's also a lot of variation in what they permit, and there's a lot of change, right? they may be changing on a weekly basis, they might be changing, um, locality to locality, state to state. It's not the kind of thing where you can say there's a clear line that that this speech is promoting something illegal now and forever or even at any given point in time or at any state. Um, and I also think that the subject of the necessity of these orders is one of great political debate. And we might all have our opinions about that, but I think it's um, exactly the kind of of, you know, Vigorous debate, um, you know criticism of government or support of government action that's at the heart of the First Amendment. and you know for social media companies that have so much power or control over the online space where people are engaged in these debates, I think we should all be concerned if they're making a choice to take down speech that you know maybe maybe they can make the case that in particular cases it's promoting unlawful activity at that point in time. but I think given the circumstances and the subject matter, We should be really concerned about that, and especially at a time when alternative means of speech are really limited. You cannot go out into the public square and speak with your fellow uh, citizens, neighbors, community members, right? So we're relying on the online space more than ever, um, which I think counsel's in favor of of caution. Um, And and I think, if, if I may add on to that, I think that's also why we at the ACLU have generally been urging um, caution and discretion in police enforcement of gathering restrictions and public health orders. Um, Because again, you know, if people are out on the streets, um, it is better to issue warnings rather than to, you know, criminally charge people because the consequences of those charges um, can be very grave for people. Um, We have a reason to be concerned about disparate enforcement. For example, there's over-policing in many communities of color around the United States. Um, So, you know, we we wouldn't want a situation where people out on the streets or gathering in violation of orders um, are only having that enforced in certain communities and not others. Um, And lastly, it's just antithetical to public health to um, arrest and jail people and, you know, put them in a congregate setting like that. So um, that's another reason that we think, you know, even where these gatherings may be properly limited. It's um, a circumstance where we shouldn't be taking a law enforcement punitive first approach. Um, And in fact, it should be the opposite where public health authorities um, do the job of trying to work with people, um, you know, the the hard work of convincing communities um, to take the necessary steps to protect their public health.
3: One other thing I'd add on um, kind of the question of misinformation and the law is that at least in the United States, I'd say the overwhelming majority of things we might consider mis- or disinformation are lawful speech too. Um, They're either opinion or they're Mm -hmm. lies, but lies that don't have a fraudulent intent or like don't have some kind of additional element of, um, you know, uh, causing people uh, financial harm, or or otherwise trying to like mislead somebody into doing something, um, they may just be inaccurate representation of facts, and and that's protected speech typically in the U.S. Um, so that means that government action to to try to restrict disinformation online is extremely constrained. Um, it's you know it's something where. I think, and I think we've seen this in a lot of different kind of public health messaging around um, COVID-19. There's just a lot of effort from different government entities, um, public health officials, to get good information out there and try to get that elevated because it is really one of these circumstances where counter speech is some of the best uh, kind of public health response that that we can expect. And the idea that we would have kind of universal agreement on exactly what counts as COVID-19 disinformation right now um, is, I don't think we have that. Certainly not in the U.S., certainly not among kind of our um, high-profile public officials. Uh, so it's, it's a scenario where the kind of the First Amendment answer of promote counter-speech, promote, um, you know, access to good, high-quality, scientifically-founded information is more important than ever uh, because the, both the legal ability and the kind of the mechanism for social Media companies to agree on and then identify and remove all of the inaccurate information about the the virus um, is really, really constrained.
0: I'm going to turn to audience questions. Um, as a reminder, uh, members of our audience, you can use the raise your hand function or send in um, a question via the chat but, um chat tool. So, what, what are our rights? Um, to not just speech and religious activities in particular, but general associations. Um, you know, obviously right now where there's a lot of concern, I think angst about um, limits on activities from going to a restaurant or a park or your barber, are, are those protected by the First Amendment as well as far as just general association? Or um, does that not receive the same protections as if you're going out to participate in a religious ceremony or a protest or something like that?
1: Um, I, I can tackle part of that question, I think, which is, you know, I, th- I think there's a separate question about, you know, whether you have a right to operate a particular business or go to a particular type of business or, or location versus um, restrictions on your liberty. Um, so I think if you're talking about restrictions on your liberty that say you must stay home, for example, or you must stay home except for these certain limited times. Um, I think that those are fundamental constitutional rights that would get elevated constitutional scrutiny heightened constitutional scrutiny. And so then again, you'd be looking at, uh, you know, is there a justification the same as you would in the context of rights to gather for protesting, for example. Um, But but those are, uh, you know, I think that that's a particular circumstance. Let's say you're under um, a very restrictive shelter-in-place order, um, or a curfew, for example, that limits when you can go outside, or um, a quarantine, because a quarantine is, in some ways, the most restrictive version um, of a home-based liberty restriction. Um, under quarantine, oftentimes, you cannot leave the home at all, not even to get food, not to get medicine. Um, and for that, you know, I-, I think you could say you are essentially under government custody. Um, so then not only do you have constitutional rights, you have substantive due process rights, meaning the government has to make sure you have access to food and medicine, um, that you're not at home starving, unable to care for yourself, but also unable to leave. And two, you have procedural due process rights. You can challenge that restriction. You should be able to go before a neutral decision maker and say, this restriction on me is not justified. But I would separate that out from you know, general claims that you know, I have a right to go golfing or I, I wanna go to a hairdresser, for example.
0: Any other thoughts on this issue or? or um, Our next question, um, Professor Schwartzman, does the type of religious activity under question in scenarios like this matter? Um, kind of just to dig on this a little, I mean, there was a one um, case Involving services, there was a lot of emphasis in the court opinion that this wasn't just a regular weekly service; that it was Easter services, which you know, are obviously a very important holiday. I mean, is, is there going to be any difference that courts should take in mind depending whether this is a you know regular weekly religious gathering, a religious event that's not even a formal service over the course of you know at a at a church or temple, um or mosque, or um if it's a you know a high holy day or something like that that should that factor in at all into the First Amendment analysis?
2: I mean, there's a question about whether it should, and there's a question about uh, you know how do you think about it under the legal doctrine. Uh, the legal doctrine is clear that courts have no business um, distinguishing between different types of religious or theological claims. Right? Whether a church service has some significance to one group and less to another. That should be irrelevant from a legal standpoint. All that matters from uh, from a doctrinal point of view is whether uh, any um, given religious practice has been substantially burdened by the law. I think there's no disagreement that these social distancing orders do that. And the rest of the analysis is, I think, where the action is. So I, there might be, you know, it might make it more politically salient for a governor or another political official to um, to put into place public health rules that you know restrict uh, religious conduct at very important religious moment or what have you. But again, I think from a legal perspective, um, that's really, it's really not the issue. The issue is whether the government's policies are justified and whether there's any kind of underlying discrimination that's happened uh, and that's I think where the action is in the, you know, in the litigation that we've seen so far.
0: And um, actually, a, a follow-up question on that from our audience. Uh, are there any legal questions being tried in court right now um, that are likely to go to the Supreme Court, either in um, terms of religious services
2: or protests? I think it's too soon to know the answer to this question. There's a case pending right now uh, in Virginia, um, Lighthouse Fellowship, which is, which is in which the Department of Justice has intervened on behalf of. Uh, a religious group against uh, an order from Governor Northam. That's proceeding in the district court. We've got a couple circuit court, appellate court opinions, uh, or at least one from the Sixth Circuit. Um, But I, I think we're still in early stages of this litigation, and we'll have to see how things develop. I suspect a lot of these cases will be mooted eventually by Um, orders opening things up. And then we'll have another round of litigation at that stage. And then, you know, depending on how things go, if there are rolling lockdowns or, you know, orders that are responsive to flare ups in the fall, um, you know, we'll have to see if those claims are, you know, are litigated at the at the moment at which they happen. But I, I think we're a long way off from from these cases going up. Uh, At least, at least I don't see it in the immediate future.
0: We've talked a little bit about narrow tailoring as an aspect of how um, any type of restrictions in this area are going to be looked at. Um, I mean, if individuals um, are concerned about a lockdown or stay-at-home order in their area, what are the type of factors they should be thinking about and looking at to get a sense of whether these orders are sufficiently narrowly tailored or not?
1: Well, I think, you know, if... First of all, I think it's it's very important to see, you know, what are trusted public health experts saying? Mm-hmm. Um, if there seems to be no public health justification for a particular restriction, um, that might be a first warning sign that, you know, maybe this is overbroad, maybe it's there's something political here. Um, you know, I'll just give an example. I, I don't think we've seen this necessarily in, with COVID, but during the Ebola outbreak of 2014 and 2015, we saw a lot of... Um, quarantine orders imposed on returning healthcare workers coming back to the United States that were scientifically unjustified. There wasn't a basis for it. The public health experts weren't calling for it. But a lot of politicians imposed them because it was to appease, you know, public fear or, um, you know, seem to be doing something and, um, you you know, and that impinged on people's liberty. It it affected their rights. So that's one thing I'd look at. Um, Now, there might be circumstances in which there's a lot that's up in the air where public health experts you know can't say definitively one way or the other Um, there might be some marginal benefit to a measure um, and then i think it has to be weighed against the you know the the liberty restriction on the other side and i think what's challenging about COVID-19 is that there is a lot that we still don't know um, you know I think it's unclear how much transmission occurs outdoors is outdoors safer than indoors because if we had that information maybe you know orders could be more narrowly tailored to limit gatherings indoors but be more permissive outdoors um, we're still in a phase where I think there's a lot of open questions um, but but those are the kinds of inquiries I, I would make if I were looking at a particular order you
2: know, in, in the religion side I would say that you know, we're seeing lots of litigation over comparators. Um, So a church will say, we should be treated like other types of entities that are not subject to in-person restrictions. So if, for example, the liquor store uh, down the street is um, open for business, then we should be open for business on the same terms, or we should be compared to groceries or other professional services that are not under similar kinds of restrictions. And those, the argument is that those secular... Um, businesses that are open, it, to the extent that they are, they defeat any claims of narrow tailoring on the part of the state. I, that's that's the, the equality anti-discrimination arguments that we're seeing in the uh, religious exemption cases are focused on those kinds of um, comparisons. I think there is a fairly aggressive strain of this argument being made, which say which the argument goes that, um, that religious uh, entities, churches, other nonprofits, should be treated as essential services. That is, they ought to be treated like hospitals or like grocery stores, and not treated like other types of non-essential businesses. Um, That's a pretty aggressive argument, and maybe the courts will go for that, some of them anyway. Um, But I, I think there's an open question about what kinds of comparisons will mark out a case for discrimination or help to undermine um, a claim by the state that it's engaged in least restrictive means or narrow tailoring.
3: The only other thing I'd, I'd add to that is, um, I think it, it has been pretty notable for the different uh, orders that we've seen in states across the country that they, Pretty much all come with a a time limit, right? There's an, a date they extend to a particular time. They extend, uh, they will be reviewed at that time. They might be extended again, um, but that kind of concept of having there's a deadline to this kind of order is really crucial. Um, Esha was talking about that earlier, but just to emphasize that I think if we if we saw orders that started coming out that didn't have a deadline, um, didn't have a time that during which these emergency measures would be in place recognizing that this is different from the status quo, um, that would be a huge red flag as far as this is not a narrowly tailored order, this is kind of a, a new law that is trying to change what the underlying baseline is. I haven't seen that <laughs> so far, um, which is good, but that would certainly be something to um, that should raise some eyebrows if we saw that.
0: I uh, before going to our next question, I wanna actually follow up on that because I think it seems like there's in the public some increasing um, discomfort or just, um, you know kind of frustration with the fact that this seems to kind of be an like a rolling onward and onward issue with um stay at home orders i mean so it seems like what you're saying is that even if there is some kind of even if we think that these are things that are likely to stay in place for a longer period of time there's policy and constitutional importance to having those narrowly timed deadlines and then kind of restarting them even if that kind of can be annoying from a public perspective?
3: I mean, I think there's a a lot of questions about exactly the right way to present and introduce Mm -hmm. to the public a a restriction like this. Um, But a big part of this, I think, goes back to what Esha has been saying about things needing to be based in scientific fact. Like there needs to be a solid uh, evidence basis for what the government's order is, that is restricting liberty. Um, And so uh, I think, personally, and I'm not an epidemiologist, so (laughs) take this with grains of salt, but it seems that part of why we've been seeing the sort of short-term orders that then get expanded on a rolling basis, um, you could argue that that's because those orders are trying to keep up with what the latest in kind of scientific inquiry is saying about the scope of the, um, the disease and the kinds of restrictions that are necessary to keep, um, keep infection rates low and try to flatten the curve and all of that. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily read anything nefarious into the fact that orders started out short and then, you know, for two weeks and then got extended to a month and then are being reviewed again, because that does in some ways match what we're seeing with the, you know, explosion of scientific research into this truly novel virus where the exact right answer for how to respond to it, nobody, certainly nobody knew for sure, you know, in January. Um, But again, I think there is, it's, it's very reasonable for people to, ask of their government, you know, why do you keep extending these emergency orders? It is crucial that there be an actual evidence-based answer to that and not have it just be a kind of, well, we realized we could get these powers in place and so we're just going to keep extending them indefinitely.
0: Another question from our audience. Uh, What constitutional concerns are raised specifically by gag orders? and um, increased arguments that information needs to be kept from public due to security concerns or surrounding this.
1: Well, as an, you know as a start for a start, I would say um, open records laws, FOIA, government transparency is more important now than ever. We have seen a lot of states and uh, I think some federal agencies as well, um, either slow walking requests or saying that there's going to be a delay. I think some states have even suspended certain open records laws. Um, They're not going to be producing documents. And, you know, I think on the one hand, you know, some delay is understandable because you've got government employees who themselves are presumably working remotely or with, uh, you know, uh, less staff. Um, But I don't think that that we should accept this, especially if we're talking about a medium to long-term situation in the United States until there's a vaccine. That there will be rolling periods of, you know, shutdowns, closures, um, you know, times when government agencies will be under greater stress. Um, I think that, you know, dealing with open records requests actually is it has to be a priority. Uh, Emma mentioned, you know, providing a justification for the measures that are being taken, and one of the few ways that the public has to hold officials accountable is to, you know, look at the documents they're relying on, the communications. What are the models? Um, For example, what are the models for people in um, jails and prisons and detention facilities? Uh, You know, what steps are governments taking to procure tests, personal protective equipment? Um, What's the racial breakdown of people who are getting COVID-19 and dying? These are all such important questions um, so transparency is is more important than ever, and I think it's going to be a real challenge, um, especially as we see government agencies start to invoke COVID nineteen itself as a reason not to produce records, not to produce documents. And I think, unfortunately, we also can't wait. Um, you know, a lot of this information is needed now for people to evaluate what's coming um, and and to be able to you know hold the government accountable. So. Uh, it's not enough to just say, well, we'll get the documents later when we're doing a look back or a post mortem and how the COVID-19 response happened. I think it's really important that we have transparency in the moment.
2: And
0: so, um, something that comes up, you know, a lot whenever there's public discussion about security risks around speech or, you know, potential to limit it is this kind of commonly used phrase of, well, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So I, would love to just tee up for, for seven experts to explain, you know, why exactly that's a little bit of an oversimplification, if not misnomer and how the law works and why, why it's important, you know, not just to say, well, that's not quite how it works, but you know, why people really should think about it in more depth than that. What's, what's the importance of not just taking it at that kind of little line.
1: U.S constitutional protections for speech give a lot of leeway um, for speech that in, in other countries, you know, might be restricted. And I, I, I think that, that that common misconception about what the limits are, um, you know, doesn't necessarily comport with reality. As a, you know, the, the standard from Brandenburg is that, you know, short of speech that incites imminent lawless action, um, you know, speech that discusses um, potential lawless action, speech that encourages it. Um, a lot of that speech is constitutional; it's permitted, um, and I think you know the the case law makes clear that there's good reason for that. Because when you criminalize speech, when you say that this speech could you know deprive you of your liberty. Um, that automatically has a a chilling effect on anything that comes close to the line right people will be very afraid to even come close to that line Mm -hmm. and so um, in the united states the line is is set at a very tight standard Um, you know there's very limited categories of speech that are um, not protected by the first amendment Um, and so you know again with the idea being that it gives people more leeway especially when you're talking about Um, criticizing the government. And I I think, um, you know, this is particularly important for civil disobedience. Um, There's a tradition of civil disobedience in the United States. Um, It's been a key part of, you know, the progress of democracy. Um, You know, engaging in civil disobedience or violating the law itself um, may not be constitutionally protected. If it's a valid law, let's say, and, and you go out and violate it. But advocacy, of civil disobedience is protected. And and it's really important, you know, when we look at the civil rights movement and people encouraging, um, you know, violations of unjust Jim Crow laws. If that had all been, uh, you know, unprotected constitutional speech, a lot of that organizing could never have happened. So I think we have to keep that in mind as well when we're thinking about the types of advocacy that are going on right now. Um, Even if people are advocating for things that would violate public health orders that are themselves constitutional and lawful, Uh, there's a lot of leeway for people to engage in that criticism um, and and to engage in in robust, vigorous discussions about whether those laws are okay or not.
3: Yeah, I I mean, just to build on that, because it's exactly through that kind of discussion that we as a people will be able to uncover these questions about, like, is this an overbroad restriction? Is this really, truly justified, um, you know, imposition on our liberty? If you can say you know, the word of the public health official is final and there it's illegal to to question it at all, that not only cuts off political advocacy um, and, you know, expression of political opinion about how whatever government is behind that public health authority is doing their job, but it also can really um, curtail scientific inquiry and kind of a, a true, you know, investigation of what is the basis for for these recommendations or for these orders? Um, so, it yeah, it's it's really crucial to to understand that the line that we have in First Amendment law is this incitement to imminent lawless action, and and your incitement, your speech inciting that needs to be actually likely to cause that lawless action to happen. Um, the, the standard you mentioned, Jake, the shouting fire in a crowded theater, it's often quoted like that, and that's actually. One, it's, it's not the kind of the current First Amendment standard. The, the Brandenburg standard um, superseded it. But it was also original. The language and the opinion is actually more like falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater? Because to be clear, if you are in a crowded theater and it's on fire, you should let people know about that. Like it is 100% constitutionally protected speech to alert people to danger that they are actually in. Um, The idea in the case was that, you know, if you falsely shout fire in the crowded theater, you're going to cause a panic. You're going to be cause the harm that happens to people when there's a stampede to get out of the theater. Um, You are, you know, rightly held responsible for that harm, Um, you shouldn't, and you can be punished for having kind of caused that sort of panic. We see that idea also come up in international human rights law around the idea that there are justified limitations on free expression for threats to um, public order and and public health and morals. Um, These are somewhat vague standards that can get really, um, abused by, by different governments around the world as kind of justifying really extreme restrictions on speech, um, on the basis that this might cause some kind of public, uh, concern or, or outcry. Um, so I think it's really important as we think about, you know, what does it mean to, um, threaten public order or to incite imminent lawless action, um, that that really is a high standard we have in the First Amendment. It's not just cause people to question the government. Um, That's sort of the whole basis of of our democracy, Uh, but really much higher standard of actually um, causing people to go out and commit a a crime or to violate the law.
0: Are there, um, obviously this is in many ways a very novel situation, um, but also isn't the first time that public health crises or crises in general have, Impacted civil liberties. So, are, are there any past precedents we can look to, um, where either religious activity or um, types of speech have been restricted, that we can either you know learn from as things that went well or things that went poorly that we should avoid?
2: I suppose I can say something briefly about some early uh, cases from the from the 1900s. Um, you know, uh, which involve, uh, compelled vaccinations where the Supreme court upheld those vaccinations over and against substantive due process challenges that were, um, framed n- not in terms of the first amendment, but as uh, 14th amendment claims. So, uh, rights to, uh, to liberty and due, due process. Um, the court rejected those challenges. And even though they were tinged with, uh, with religious content, the court said, you know, if this state has has a public health interest of this kind, um, it, it can it can impose these kinds of requirements for vaccination. And there are, so the lower courts have discussed some of these cases and cited them favorably. I think no one is looking to reverse those decisions or to, to challenge them. There's some discussion um, about, you know, how broadly they can be construed. I think it is true that this is a novel situation in many ways, and we don't have Uh, immediate precedent on stay-at-home orders, on how to interpret, um, you know, compelling interest analysis and combining that with deference to public health officials in these contexts. So the courts are in some ways in uncharted territory, and they're drawing on those earlier precedents, but I don't know how much guidance they're going to get in any particular factual situation. They've got some touchstones, but there's still a lot of work to do.
0: Any other kind of lessons from history that anyone kind of wants to cite or things that are good to keep in mind? All right. um, You know, there was some discussion earlier about kind of how, as obviously a whole, parts of our life have been moving out of the public sphere more and more activity is going online. Um, So I just want to quickly um, ask, uh, to what degree should we be aware of you know, limits about ability to to go online for people. You know, I think a lot of us expect that we can just put a lot of our daily activities online, but, um, you know, it's it's worth noting to to what degree that is kind of somewhat, in many cases, a privilege that not everyone in this country shares. So um, uh, we'd also just kind of talk a little bit about kind of to what extent can people replace our activities online.
3: I think one thing that um, the, you know, country in general being under lockdown has, has really highlighted is the um, significant digital divide that exists uh, between um, socioeconomic classes in, in the United States. Um, there's been one, one particular area where it's really, um, unfortunately, very obvious is in online schooling. Uh, So, you know, schools across the country are shut down, students have been sent home, and they're asked to be doing their their classwork and engaging with their teachers, um, you know, through the internet connection that they're presumed to have. Um, But unfortunately, and I don't have the stats right in front of me, but uh, a large percentage of um, the school-age population in the United States does not have reliable access to you know high-speed internet access at home um, they either have relied on using the internet through school or through things like public libraries um, most of which are also uh, closed to the public right now for in you know recognition of of the need for social distancing um, so I think we're seeing a real sort of and I I've seeing uh, just kind of anecdotally, you know, articles in the past couple of weeks showing that educators are already starting to see like real educational um, achievement and uh, and development disparities, um, s- you know, being shown amongst the students in their class, even just over the you know seven or eight weeks that that they've been relying on online schooling. Um, so I think there's uh, I know that there's been a lot of advocacy at Congress from um, a number of different uh, human rights and civil liberties groups and digital rights groups in the U.S. Uh, calling for kind of these questions of broadband access to actually be part of what. Congress considers in its, um, its next kind of COVID-19 relief bill, because it's very clear that there are, are huge disparities here.
1: Yeah, I, I would echo what Emma said. I think the broadband access point is critical for equity, for education, and also for all of the speech issues we've been talking about, because in effect, the only way people have any access to their legislators, policymakers, is online. So it also affects petition rights and, and the ability to be part of any public sphere.
0: Um, you know, the, there's obviously a whole host of issues that we've been discussing that are at the forefront of public debate right now about this issue and how it affects First Amendment rights. I'm, I'm really curious about, as um, you know, the three of you think about these issues and you know, what might be going ahead, what, what are you, do you think either concerned or just you know generally on your mind think are issues that are going to confront us involving first amendment rights as this crisis continues for the next several months i mean professor Schwartzman, you mentioned vaccinations um you know i imagine that that certainly you know is one example of an issue that will confront us in the future what else do you guys think are things that we should be thinking about now so we can be ready for in the weeks and months ahead
3: well I think uh, one issue that's obviously um, already come up a lot in the the press is this whole question about contact tracing apps um, and kind of what what utility there is in different efforts to use technology like people's mobile phones um, and either Bluetooth connections or other kinds of uh, data from those mobile phones to try to identify people who may have been exposed to someone who's COVID positive. Um, there are obviously enormous privacy um, and security concerns with having that information um, exposed either to tech companies analysis or to government um, analysis and collection. Uh, but I think there's also going to be a big question about sort of the impact on freedom of association and the, both the kind of online connections that we have with people, but also our, our physical interaction with people um, in offline contexts. And I'm, I think we're all kind of watching uh, to see how the conversation around contract tracing apps and other technology develops um, and whether, in this country or in other countries, it ever moves from an idea of a voluntary app that people can choose to download into something that starts being, you know, contingent on. Um, I'm particularly concerned about employers trying to make use of contract tracing apps or other kinds of uh, tracking um, technologies contingent on people being able to come back to work, um, because I think we will see arguments that, you know, well, this is really necessary to keep a workforce safe. Uh, but I'm a uh, Go on record that I'm guessing it's probably not the least restrictive means for doing that um and has a lot of other kind of uh risks to both privacy and freedom of association um, that that might not be uh, as fully considered
1: i think that the fact that we're in an election season um it's a it's a huge challenge because this is often the time when people are exercising their first amendment rights the most um and especially with respect to protests. Um, So I think, you know, the next six months, uh, you know, to the extent that there might be some loosening of restrictions, it seems less likely that large gatherings will be permitted until there is some widely accessible and reliable treatment or vaccine. Um, You know, so I think that one, you know, as a country, we should start thinking about that and and start, you know, being prepared for potentially longer term limitations on very large gatherings that we may have been used to and, and start thinking about what other ways of, you know, exercising our rights we can engage in, what, what more protections do we need, um, you know, how does it affect people's ability to participate in the democratic process, um, you know, to vote, all of these things I think will be really important.
2: I suppose on the religion side, I, I'm worried that this is becoming a further wedge issue uh, from a cultural war perspective, um, and that religious institutions on the one side, I think mo- most of them um, don't have any uh, don't have any uh, objection to the initial social distancing orders, understand why they were put into place, agree with the public health uh, concerns, and can see the justification for them, but uh, but in some of the litigation, I, I think we see a kind of double standard, which is that religious institutions ought to be treated as essential organizations, like hospitals, um, like, uh, like businesses that are necessary for, um, for sustaining people's lives. Um, but on the other hand, there are claims that religious organizations ought to be treated like all other types of nonprofits, especially when it comes to funding. So one, resp- one part of the response to COVID, of course, is the uh, is, the, uh, is the Small Business Administration's um, Paycheck Protection Program, where, you know, we, we've seen a payout now of probably billions of dollars to religious organizations on the theory that they should be treated exactly like other nonprofit entities. And I think there is some tension in the underlying First Amendment view that, uh, that emerges, not from all religious organizations. I think most of them uh, want, want to be treated Uh, in the same way that other types of of nonprofits are being treated. But I think there is some tension, especially in the view of the Department of Justice, uh, in the view of some of the litigation shops that are bringing these claims, that they ought to have special treatment when it comes to exemptions, but the same treatment when it comes to funding, right? We shouldn't have to abide by quite the same public health rules that other types of organizations have to abide by. And yeah, we ought to get the same type of of subsidy from the government and support from the government. I, I think if, if we're gonna have equal treatment it ought to be across the board. Uh, and I, I'd be on the lookout, I, I suppose, in the future for uh, comparisons along those lines.
0: So we're approaching the hour. Um, I always try to find some slight more uplifting final question for these conversations since they can be a bit um, dire, so I'm curious. Um, Have we seen any examples from across the world um, that can be helpful guides for us? You know, obviously, um, the United States, its speech and religious freedom laws and the First Amendment are very unique, even for democracy. Um, But, you know, are there any policies from other countries that are further along in their response to this crisis or just, you know, further advanced um, that can give us a guiding hand on measures that can support the goals we're trying to achieve as far as you know, protecting public health, also supporting religious freedom, supporting ability to speak out, to protest, um, to do these types of activities that are so important to us.
3: I'm not sure if I have kind of government policies or or laws to point to, but I, as you were asking the question, I was kind of reflecting on that. Every every country I could think of, um, you know, kind of regardless of their. Uh, the severity of their lockdown measures. I can think of examples of people doing something expressive, uh, you know, in those scenarios. I'm thinking of, you know, Italy and, you know, seeing them go under very significant lockdown, very strict measures about how frequently people could leave the house and everything. And we saw the profusion of, you know, people standing on their balconies and singing opera to each other and, um, you know, and applauding and, and just all of the, It's my take, my very, very optimistic, cheerful takeaway from quarantine is that it's reaffirmed to me how much people value their rights to free expression, um, and how people turn to creativity and art and being able to connect with other people in these extremely stressful and challenging times. And that the, the kind of the, just how innate a, a human interest in expression is, along with a fundamental human right, um, it has never been clearer to me. It's, you know, we're seeing people under their most stressed circumstances and they're, they're reaching out and they're trying to communicate and they're trying to connect. Um, and so that I think is very, very positive and something that we can see human beings, no matter what state they live in, what government they're, um, you know, they're under, uh, having similar responses like that, which I think is, um, really does lift my spirits.
1: I would just add to that. I think we're seeing people value whistleblowers around the world, and we've seen in many other countries, um, governments maybe that have tried to restrict, you know, the speech of scientists, government employees, um, and and the people in in various countries supporting those whistleblowers and and pushing back. And I think there's plenty of examples of those. And I think that also affirms this idea that no matter the system of government you live in, um, people you know, they recognize the importance of that, they will support people who are trying to speak truth to the public. Um, You know, even in a dire crisis situation where people are being asked to trust their government, um, you know, people nonetheless want to hear from people who have something to say about where the government may be going wrong.
2: I would only add to that, that when you do um, comparisons across countries, I think it's also important to remember that we have a huge diversity of policies within our country. Uh, I recently ran a 50-state survey to look at how states have treated religious organizations with respect to social distancing, and there's a there's a, a very broad range of state and local responses to how to deal with this problem. So there's a lot of internal experimentation uh, and policy differentiation happening, and you know we can learn something from ourselves. And but also I think it's useful to see that uh, the the those policies um, range across the streets and don't break down straightforwardly on political lines. And I think that ought to help give us some faith that our, um, our state and local governments are acting uh, in good faith, uh, trying to protect the public health, or at least frequently when, when they're uh, engaged in evaluating these kinds of rules. And it's not that we ought to um, defer outright to them, but that we, I think, don't have to immediately politicize along party or partisan lines, the responses that we're seeing. I don't think that's frequently the best explanation for what's happening. Uh, and we're, we have to dig deeper, work harder at seeing how these rules are applied and testing them against local facts, which is, I think, very important going forward.
0: Okay, hey, well, that's a, a great note for um, us to close out, close out on. Uh, I want to thank our audience for who joins today. I especially want to thank our three excellent panelists for a very informative and thoughtful discussion. You know, these are the exact type of questions and issues um, that we really need to be thinking about during a time like this, and that often can get lost in the discussion, but you know, are more important now than ever. So, thank you guys so much for being here today and for having this chat with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you.